This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. You are in fact cordially invited to join us for the next hour as we proceed to talk about the usual stuff here on Radio Parallax. Let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 10th of July. It was on July 10th in 1778 that French King Louis XVI declared war on England in support of the American Revolution. Something which appears to have been forgotten by various neocons, republicans, and hawks during our ramp up to the war in Iraq, which the French and also the Germans and a lot of their folks wanted no part of. But it seems pretty clear that without French help, we would not have won our war of rebellion against Great Britain, which was forgotten as recently as <laughs> our, our past July 4th holiday. Here's a minor item, but we can't resist it. It was on July 10th in 1900 that his master's voice, one of the most famous trademarks in the world, was registered with the U.S. Patent Office for the Victor Recording Company, later RCA Victor. The logo showed a dog looking into the horn of a gramophone. And for our money, it was just about as cool as a trademark can be. On July 10th in 1940, the Germans began the first in a series of World War II bombing raids against Great Britain. This became known as the Battle of Britain, which lasted for three and a half months. The Royal Air Force was able to stave off Hermann Goering's Luftwaffe and buy some much-needed time to recoup. And it was on July 10th in 1962 that Telstar 1, the world's first commercial communication satellite, was launched from Cape Canaveral. Launched at 4.30 a.m. by 7.30 a.m., it had relayed its first telephone call from the chairman of AT&T in Maine to Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson. And, of course, was the inspiration for a not-a-bad piece of music by the Tornadoes. Our quote of the day comes from the late, great Eli Wallach, who once said, Having the critics praise you is like having the hangman say you've got a pretty neck. You know, sometimes we can't believe our good fortune to have had the opportunity to talk to people like Eli Wallach, and we do hope that we're going to continue to bring you people of his caliber in the future. Our quip of the day, which we have on loan from Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, comes from... Occasional poetry critic Voltaire, who commented on Rousseau's Ode to Posterity by saying, I do not think this poem will reach its destination. Our joke of the day comes from Seth Myers, who said a few weeks back, Over the weekend, Afghanistan held its presidential election runoff. The way it works is everyone runs off, and whoever's slowest has to be president of Afghanistan. Our stat of the day is 78 minutes. That's the radio parallax calculation of the interval between scores during the World Cup quarterfinals. During those games, Germany beat France 1 to nothing and Argentina beat Belgium 1 to nothing. The Brazilian-Colombian game was quite a score fest with Brazil winning 2 to 1, but that was made up for by the 
zero to zero tie between Netherlands and Costa Rica, which then added 30 more minutes of nil, nil tie before the Netherlands finally won four to three on penalty kicks. We don't count those four to three in the scoring here. No, we get 390 minutes of quarterfinal scintillating action with a grand total of five goals. Mr. Miller notes we now have an explanation for why they're so excited when there's some scoring, any scoring. Sidelight statistic with the loss of Costa Rica, it marks the continuation of a streak going back to the first World Cup in 1930 when no nation from either the Caribbean or Central America has made the semifinals. It is curious to note that two small countries, Netherlands and Costa Rica, did make it, whereas India, China, United States, and Russia, and hell, let's throw in Indonesia, the world's five most populous nations, fail to get anybody as far as the quarterfinals. We can only assume that the sport is a great leveler. We also want to note a couple of bonus stats. First off, that UC Davis was ranked number one for the second year in a row for teaching and research in the area of agriculture and forestry, according to the QS World University rankings. Yes, number one in the world. Not bad. And another bonus stat, uh, the number of UC Davis scientists who have received the Wolf Prize in Agriculture is now up to five with the award for 2014 going to Jorge Dubkovsky, wheat geneticist in the Department of Plant Sciences and previous guest here at Radio Parallax. Yes, isn't it about time we had an update on wheat genetics here on the program? We think it is. That's why we're going to have one later in the show. Our good news of the day is that Smithsonian Magazine, which this correspondent was about ready to give up on, had a really good issue this past month, which brings up the dilemma of, do I renew my subscription? But uh, for good news within the good news, the Smithsonian had a wonderful article about bad boy chef and author Anthony Bourdain, who I have to admit is turning out some pretty good television of late. It tends to revolve around traveling to odd places and eating interesting food. Good food, usually. As, to, as opposed to some of the competing shows that seem to want to go to strange places and eat strange things. He's smart. He's funny. He entertains. He informs. We've come to embrace Anthony Bourdain as our kind of guy. And, you know, we ought to have him on the show. Although we have noticed that uh, currently hot celebrities tend to be the most impossible bookings. But you'd never know. All right, our anecdote of the day we're going to borrow also from Smithsonian, which informs us that the smackdown was set for a day in the 14th year of the Roman Emperor Galenius in the city of Antonopolis, which was on the Nile, the final bout in the Sacred Games honoring a deified youth named Antonius featured teenage wrestlers named Nicantonius and Demetrius. The magazine notes it promised to be a noble spectacle except for the fact that the fix was in. Apparently a papyrus found in Egypt and dating to A.D. 267 is apparently the first known bribery contract in ancient sports. Demetrius agreed to throw the match for 3,800 drachmas. According to the papyrus, Demetrius was set to fall three times for his drachmas. For the notes, if Demetrius doesn't play his part, there will be a penalty of 18,000 drachmas. Apparently, the, the scholar at King's College in London who translated this papyrus thinks that the 3,800 drachmas was not much. It was barely enough to buy a donkey. But then, in 267 AD, a donkey might have been a pretty respectable set of wheels. We don't know. 
All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. First, we've done after reporting the loss of the ugly, i.e. Eli Wallach. So I guess we'd note Eli, wherever you are, we dedicate this one to you. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for wingnuts after Oklahoma Republican Timothy Murray said he would contest the results of a primary, claiming that his victorious rival, Representative Frank Lucas, is, quote, no longer alive and has been displayed by a lookalike, unquote. Said Lucas, this was the first time I've ever been accused of being a body double or robot. And for more about the condition that may be uh, leading Timothy Murray to come to this conclusion about Representative Lucas, we would refer you to our very own interview with Sam Keen here a few weeks back about his book, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, the history of the human brain as revealed by true stories of trauma, madness, and recovery. I think future editions of the book may have uh, one more example to use uh, coming from Oklahoma. All right. Also from the week, we would note that it was a bad week last week for being locked and loaded after a vendor at a Pennsylvania gun show accidentally shot a woman in the leg while demonstrating a concealed carry holster. Said a witness, I think the dealers were upset because it makes them look bad. And it was an ugly week last week for pest control with the news that a Kansas woman was charged with arson after she set her house on fire in a bid to kill a spider. Ginny Griffin was arrested when firefighters responded to reports of smoke pouring from her half of a duplex. Police said that Griffin had torched a pile of towels in an attempt to exterminate an unwelcome arachnid. The blaze quickly got out of control. No one was injured in the incident, but Griffin was charged with arson because the other half of the duplex was occupied when she started the fire. No word on the status of the spider. All right, here's a story that's good, bad, and ugly. It goes like this. A man named Robert Renning was driving down the road and noticed that a car had caught fire. He apparently didn't think twice about pulling over and approaching the burning SUV. So I guess that part's good. When he got there, he saw that all of the doors had locked, trapping the driver, Michael Johannes, which we find both bad and ugly and crazy. Why did the SUV doors lock during the fire? Anyway, apparently Renning sprang into action, wedged his fingers into the crease above the door, and planting his foot for leverage, managed to bend the locked door in half, shattering the glass. That part's good for the heroism angle, but I would say bad from the angle of automobile construction. Johannes apparently escaped with only minor cuts. So we're, again, back to pure good. And for his part, Renning downplayed his Superman moment, saying, somebody was in trouble, and you're supposed to help each other out. I don't know, we're puzzled by the specter of a guy locked inside his own burning car. Then we have this item from the perhaps only in Colombia, file. 
which is that apparently a herd of African hippos, once owned by the famed drug lord Pablo Escobar, is causing havoc in the Colombian countryside. In the 1980s, Escobar built a zoo at his ranch, which was home to a male and three female hippos. But following the drug traffickers' capture in 1991, the beasts escaped and began breeding. Today, there are at least 60 hippos ranging the countryside, eating crops and occasionally crushing small cows. It's noted that local biologist Patricio von Hildebrand is pushing a radical solution for this invasive species. He said, we should barbecue them and eat them. This reminds me of a piece posted uh, by our good pal Franz Cassing. Auntie Franz used to host the It's About You program, a fine piece of public affairs here at KDVS for many years, and on occasion is still doing her part to make this an even better station. But frankly, we cannot resist this item which uh, she forwarded, which are uh, answers to actual responses to the Australian Tourism's website. And yes, I know we've been promising Pamela Taylor on this program for a while, our Australian correspondent, but she's a very busy lady right now with a, uh, a new child. But uh, maybe next week, you can bet your bottom dollar she's going to have things to, to say about some of these responses, which, uh, well, let's give you a sampling. Question, does it ever get windy in Australia? I have never seen it rain on TV. How do the plants grow? That one came from the UK, <laughs> said the Australians. We import all plants fully grown and then just sit around watching them die. Someone from Sweden wrote to ask, I want to walk from Perth to Sydney. Can I follow the railroad tracks? Said the Australian tourism website, Sure, it's only 3,000 miles. Take a lot of water. And of course, what reminded me of this is this one. Can you give me some information about hippo racing in Australia? And that one, of course, come, came from the U.S. of A. Said the Australians, Africa is the big triangle-shaped continent south of Europe. Australia is that big island in the middle of the Pacific, which does not. To which they added, oh, forget it. Sure, the hippo racing is every Tuesday night in King's Cross. Come naked. Also from the USA, which direction is north in Australia? Said the Australians, face south and then turn 180 degrees. Contact us when you get here and we'll send the rest of the directions. And also from the USA, can you send me the Vienna Boys Choir schedule? Said the Aussies, Austria is that quaint little country bordering Germany, which is, oh, forget it. Sure, the Vienna Boys Choir plays every Tuesday night in King's Cross, straight after the hippo races. Come naked. Someone from the USA also write to ask, please send a list of all doctors in Australia who can dispense rattlesnake serum. Said the Australians, rattlesnakes live in America, which is where you come from. To which they added, all Australian snakes are perfectly harmless, can be safely handled, and make good pets. As a public service announcement, we would add that Australia does have venomous snakes. And finally, and sadly this one also comes from the U.S., I have a question about a famous animal in Australia, but I forget its name. It's a kind of bear and lives in trees. <laughs> Said the Aussies, it's called a drop bear. 
They are so called because they drop out of gum trees and eat the brains of anyone walking underneath them. To which they added, you can't scare them off by spraying yourself with human urine before you go out walking. Anyway, thanks, France. We really do lo- we really do like Australians. All right, we got a ton of updates. Starting with the sad news that apparently two Earth-like planets don't, in fact, exist. Recent examination of the data from the Kepler spacecraft regarding the cool red star called Gliese 581, which is just 22 light years away, shows that two planets once believed to be in the Goldilocks zone, not too close and not too far, uh, were, in fact, um, um, due to confusing data from the star's sunspots. So yeah, it turns out that Gliese 581G and D were not planets at all, but just a jumbled signal from the star itself. It turned out scientists had already ruled out the existence of a third planet, Gliese F, but that still leaves three planets which are known to be orbiting this star, unfortunately none of which are in the habitable zone. I think we also talked uh, a few weeks back about this supposed Turing test they did where they fooled judges for a while by putting a, a chat bot. It wasn't, it wasn't, it, this was, Alan Turing is probably spinning in his grave. By dumbing down the test and alleging that it was a, a, a foreign speaker, I think Russian or Ukrainian or something, they were able to fake people out for a while that the, uh, that the computer was really, you know, talking. It was, it was, it was like artificial intelligence. No, no, no. It was a bunch of bunk. And apparently so was all that stuff about uh, the polarization of light, the microwave background radiation that shows that the universe is patchy and led to all these conclusions about how the universe began. Now they're saying that it may be, the data may be skewed due, due to dust in the Milky Way. And no, we don't understand why people are so enamored with these cosmologists that sit around speculating about how the universe began 13 point whatever billion years ago. We can only suppose they've taken the place of philosophers who a few centuries ago would sit around and have lively debates about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. We think it's about as useful and probably about as accurate. All right, let's follow up on our chat a few weeks back about uh, the cost the high cost in America of education. We'd like to quote Richard Vetter, writing in BloombergView.com, noting that American institutions will confer about 1.8 million bachelor's degrees this year. Vetter notes that, uh, unfortunately, many of these graduates will end up taking jobs historically done by those with high school diplomas or less. This is because there's a long-term problem at work. There are simply more college graduates than jobs requiring college degrees. Of course, you'd think, as we talked about previously, this would mean that in the future we'd see a decrease in the cost of a college education. I wouldn't bet on it. Better notes that the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts a gain of more than 15 million jobs by 2022, but less than a third of them will require a college education. He notes that as the word spreads that college degrees do not guarantee vocational success, many students may choose to skip college and the student debt involved altogether. But, he notes, 
quote, solving the problem will be very difficult so long as politicians find it expedient to dole out aid and cheap loans to students who won't benefit from college at all. The bottom line is that unless we overhaul how we finance higher education, we'll continue to have lots of graduates with low-paying jobs, big debts, and unfulfilled expectations. And a companion piece, the NewYorkTimes.com notes that a study by Yale economists found that during a recession, college majors matter. Students who focused on subjects like engineering and finance increased their earnings advantage when they graduated into a down economy, while those who studied philosophy or music were even more disadvantaged than usual. All this may make better sense out of a recent uh, item from the WashingtonPost.com, noting that your high school GPA is strongly correlated with how much you'll earn as a worker. That's according to a new study. They felt that for a one-point increase in a person's high school GPA, average annual earnings in adulthood increased by more than 12%. Well, that's for men, and about 14% for women. I guess that's because in the current job market, your high school GPA is what's really important. And I believe we commented some time back on, on some ridiculous op-ed piece in the B about how much water we could generate in California by just saving it. Well, there was a reality check in the B last Sunday, a piece by Jay Lund, Jeffrey Mount, and Ellen Hank, and a special to the B addressing some of the myths about our state's drought. I was drawn to the second myth they talked about, which was, which was about whether conservation can really create abundant new water. Said the piece, some claim that potential dramatic yields of more than 10 million acre feet of new water, equivalent to 10 full Folsom reservoirs, can be had from conservation measures that draw half from agriculture and half from urban users. But this is just not credible. In fact, conservation does not always yield new water because the water saved is often not wasted in the first place. It is already reused. This is especially true in agriculture. Irrigation water that is not consumed by crops flows back into rivers or seeps into groundwater basins. Indeed, the single largest source for groundwater recharge in the Central Valley is irrigation. Also notes the studies from around the world consistently show that increased irrigation efficiency often does not decrease net water use. Indeed, these techniques often encourage farmers to plant more crops, worsening long-term declines in groundwater availability. They go on to note that in the urban environment, steady reductions in per capita water use since the early 1990s have allowed total urban use to remain steady at about 8.5 million acre-feet. They note that further savings, especially for more drought-tolerant landscapes, will be needed, but because about a third of urban water already gets reused, it also returns to rivers and groundwater basins. It's simply not possible to achieve the level of new water that some have imagined. And having just driven up from Southern California and seen these vast acreages on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley, I would say that uh, if we save water here in uh, urban areas with more drought-tolerant landscapes and they just ship it down to... Uh, farm more rice and cotton, I don't know where we're gaining. We'll continue to squawk about that in the future. And here's something we've always suspected. A paper purporting to show that genetically modified food is harmful has been republished in Environmental Sciences Europa after it was retracted by the original journal, Food and Chemical Toxicology. The research claims that rats fed modified mazes 
that's the European word for corn, suffered kidney, liver, and pituitary problems, but it has been panned by toxicologists for its poor use of statistics. Now, there are a lot of good reasons to have some doubts about genetically modified uh, organisms and how they're being used by big ag, but rats getting kidney and liver problems are probably not the main concern, particularly since those problems are probably imaginary. And we talked some weeks back about how these plastic microbeads that are used by various uh, cosmetics corporations as exfoliants are causing a significant environmental problem. This has led the state of Illinois to become the first U.S. state to ban cosmetics that contain plastic microbeads. The reason for this, animals mistake them for food, so they end up with a belly full of plastics. According to the Gyres Institute in Los Angeles, the Great Lakes are riddled with the stuff. The Jars Institute team dragged a mesh over the Great Lakes and found up to 466,000 plastic bits per square kilometer. And cosmetic microbeads made up 81% of that garbage. This has galvanized people in New York, Ohio, and California to also consider banning microbeads. All right, and some further follow-up. We talked a while back about how the Chinese are putting together conferences, uh, well, some rather dubious conferences where apparently people pay to come and present their data, which is why the Chinese are motivated to set them up. Now, they noted sadly in the feedback section of the magazine that uh, one of their correspondents, Cleo Borzai, passed away on June 11th. She was fond of putting out papers such as Harnessing Angular Kinetic Energy from Colossal Cloned Rodentia, Re-Envisioning the Hamster Wheel Model in Green Energy Management. Well, apparently, stuff like that got their attention over in China. Because, in fact, on the very day she passed away, she received an urgent query from the organizers of the third annual World Congress of Aquaculture and Fisheries in Dalian, China. They were inquiring about her planned presentation, Aquadog, Use of Trained Border Collies to Herd Fish and Protect Them in Vulnerable Marine Aquaculture Facilities. By the way, if you know anyone who's ever been to China to present a paper in a conference like this, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. All right, final item. We've talked about uh, TV watching and how it destroys brain cells. Well, at least in our opinion. And this might be a good time to mention that the opinion that television damages brain cells is ours alone. It does not necessarily represent that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But we do note that according to the Wall Street Journal, citing data from the American Time Use Survey, watching television was still the number one leisure activity in 2013, with Americans spending an average of two hours and 46 minutes each day watching TV. Frankly, we've heard worse numbers in the past. But it does sadly remind us of a great quote from the immortal Dave Barry, and in this one I'm paraphrasing, but Dave Barry did say some years back that it was a sad fact of life that you'd be lucky to find one person in a hundred that could recite the Pythagorean theorem, but that everybody you asked was sure to know the theme song to Mr. Ed. 
horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Red. Go right to the... And on that note, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Steady course, talk to Mr. Red. People yakety-yak the streak and waste your time a day. But Mr. Ed will never speak unless he has something to say. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and this one will talk till his voice is hoarse. You never heard of a talking horse? 